Well, if you would, turn to Philippians chapter 4, and if you've just joined us, we are uh, plowing through. We're almost done. We will meet next week, and then we'll take a break for Christmas, but we've been plowing through this book called the book of Philippians. It's in the New Testament, Galatians, Ephesians, and then Philippians. It's one of the letters Paul writes in prison, and we've talked about this. Uh, Paul has a deep affection for this group. This isn't like the letter he wrote to the church at Corinth where his fangs are out (laughs) and his feathers as a peacock. Uh, This is vastly different. And we're going to see that in chapter 4. We've been moving through this book, and in chapter 4, 1 through 9, he's he's coming to a screeching halt. This is the conclusion, so to speak. He's, He's wrapping up, reiterating what he's talked about. So we're in chapter 4, verse 1, and and I'm reading from the Nat Bible. It's just one English translation. It's uh, it's one I like, but there are many out there, so forgive me if it doesn't match with your text spot on, but that's what we're doing. It says, So then, 4.1 of Philippians, my brothers and sisters, watch this, notice the affection that he's going to highlight. He's going to mention brothers twice in this passage. Uh, Dear friends, which could be translated, ones I love. All right, whom I long to see. That's a term used of homesickness. Right, my joy and crown stand in the Lord in this way, my dear friends. So he repeats this term that could be simply translated the ones I love. All right, so it, I mean this thing is oozing; it's dripping with affection. Paul, you know, you think about this. He only probably spent a few weeks at Philippi, but he. There is a strong connection, isn't there, with this church? <clears throat> and they with him. Don't miss that. We talked about Epaphroditus. They sent one of their key leaders to, to Paul all the way to Rome to minister to him. They have sent money, and they've certainly been praying for him. And so he says, I appeal to Odia and to Syntyche to agree in the Lord. All right. Nothing like having your name mentioned in Scripture <laughs> on an ill light. All right. We don't know what their problem is, but we got two ladies who can't get it together. Uh, they're probably not agreeing on the color of the carpet <clears throat> in the foyer. Who knows? All right? Maybe it's the Christmas decorations. I don't know. And it says, Yes, I say also to you, true companion, help them. They have struggled together in the gospel ministry along with me and Clement. We don't know who he is. This is the only place he's mentioned in Scripture. And my other workers whose names are in the book of life. So, by the way, what do we know about Odie and Syntyche based on those two verses? They're believers, right? Now, what else do you know about them? They're women. We won't go there. It's a group of men. We won't go there, right? Uh, uh, What else? Because there's probably three or four opinions between the two of them. Um, What else do we know? They're loyal. They're co-workers. They're leaders in the church, and their, their prominence must be so significant, and we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. He says, you need to come around them, verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Joy has been seen throughout this book. It's not surprising he should, as he concludes this epistle, come back to that. <clears throat> in fact, he says, in case you missed it, I said rejoice, <laughs> right? Let everyone see your gentleness. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything. Instead, in every situation, through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, tell your request to God. And the peace of God, 
that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and mind in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, repeated to what he said up in verse 1, whatever is true, whatever is worthy of respect, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if something is excellent or praiseworthy, you need to think about these things. And what you've learned and received and heard and saw in me, he's, he's making sure he catches all arenas, right? Whether I was there in Philippi with you or whether you heard about me secondhand, he says, do these things. Uh, and the God of peace, which he just mentioned earlier, will be with you. This text is so powerful. Uh, and I, I, you know, you memorize these verses when you're a kid or you've uh, at least... Uh, verse 8, and going back to this, I'm going, I don't think I've ever seen this before in studying this. So I'm excited about this morning as we unpack this. He, he starts off in this glorious statement of, of who they are, and he says, I want you to stand firm. Under this, under, uh, well, this umbrella of standing firm, we're, we're taken, I think, back to chapter 1. 127. Turn to 127. Do you remember the command that I said governed the whole book? <clears throat> 127. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Right? So when he says to stand firm in chapter 4, over here, he's taking the reader back to chapter 1 via chapter 3, because uh, we know in the gr Greek grammar here in 4.1, he's linking, he's purposely linking this back to chapter 3, the end of 3. Look at the end of 3. He says, be imitators of whom? Me. Remember that? <clears throat> so Paul's giving his life as an example to follow, not out of arrogance. We talked about that. Um, but he's saying, you know, my passion to serve Christ, that's what I want in you. And so stand firm. And then what he does in this section, and this is what we're going to observe he then will tease this out in three areas. One is in unity, and he's going to use two ladies as an example. The second is in joy, which is key to the whole book. The whole theology, in fact, if you study the theology of joy, you need the book of Philippians. And in proper thinking. And notice I said proper thinking, because for him, thinking has action. The cognitive will address the effective domain. And all of this, I'm going to argue, is seen in the life of Paul. He's modeled this for them. He's told them to imitate him. And now it's going to spell out in, in three ways that they can stand firm. So let's look at these. Let's look at the first of these here in the notes. Um, and again, the standing firm, you can see that there under letter A of the notes. Um, I should mention this joy and crown. A lot of scholars see that to refer to the end when Paul appears before the Lord, they will be like that, that perishable wreath that an athlete received in the end game. I don't think he's, he's I think his focus, they are, present tense, <laughs> they are his joy and crown. Uh, that's why he's doing what he's doing, right? Uh, and, and so I see it as present, and Hawthorne in his commentary argues that as well, and I think he's right. But let's, let's look at the three ways that they are to stand firm. The first of these is in unity, right? <clears throat> stand firm. And he mentions these two ladies, Odia and Syntyche. Uh, women played a key role in Philippi. Remember how this church started Philippi? 
Lydia, right? This woman who was meeting with the God-fears outside the city. And, and we also know there was a servant girl as well in Acts 16. So women played a key role. Some scholars want to argue that Odia or Syntyche is another name for Lydia, one or the other. I don't think so. I, I, I think you have some, some prominent women who play a key role in this congregation. Why do they argue that? I'm sorry? Why do they argue that? Why do they argue that? Oh, I, I don't know. I'm not sure why scholars argue Lydia is one of the names of these other ladies. Um, Eugene said they need another a paragraph to make their book complete. Uh, well, it's interesting. Notice who's supposed to help them in verse 3? A true companion. Now, some say, well, he's just saying, you are all that. No, I think he's referring to someone specific. And the question is, who is that? And some scholars say, well, that's Lydia. Could be. Uh, it could be Epaphroditus. Could be Luke. Could be Timothy. Uh, some have even argued it's Paul's wife, which uh, I don't see that connection. But um, we know Paul was married at one point. Um, no, no, the text doesn't tell us. Uh, the point is, this is a public issue. It's infected the congregation, and the call is for the entire body to be involved, to bring stability. Remember what he said in Philippians 2? You're to all have this same mind as in Christ, right? Walking in humility. These two women are being used for the kingdom, there's no doubt. They're part of the kingdom. They're listed in the book of life, but there are some issues. <laughs> and Paul said, you, you, you can't stand firm if you're divided in the camp. A house divided against itself cannot stand, right? Sound familiar? Uh, that's not scripture. But here it's scripture, right? There's need to stand firm. And, and that's what he's saying here. You, you must stand firm in this as a, as a body. And, and it affects all of the congregation. I'm reminded of James, into James. You know, you got this guy who's struggling possibly um, with a physical illness. But remember, the elders are called in and pray over the person who's struggling. Uh, it, it, the whole body should be caring for one another. Uh, ministries, parachurch, church, should not be in competition. <laughs> We're in this together. That's why Paul said earlier, remember in Philippians? He said, even if they're preaching Christ, and they are, in the wrong, with the wrong motive, rejoice. We're in this together, right? We're not here to, uh, well, I'm starting to preach. We'll go on, right? So he said, number one, we're going to stand firm in unity, and we need the entire church to be involved. He said, that's vital. Questions on this point? I mean, this is pretty clear. We've talked about this in light of Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Christ being the standard of unity, but, you know, of all the things for Paul to talk about in closing this letter, uh, unity is vital. Clement, we don't know who he is. There are some who argue he's the later church father, but that's, there's too many, he'd be too old most likely to be that Clement. Um, that's all right. I was going somewhere with the, the church. Oh, well, what did Christ state in the upper room? They will know you're my disciples if you love one another. You're unified. Christ's reputation is at stake when there's not, you know, there has to be unity within the body. Well, he then says to stand firm in joy, right? 
So the second way that they can stand firm, not only in unity, but also in joy. In your notes under verse 4, I mentioned that several scholars argue that this section of imperatives, that's, he kind of does this uh, machine gun effect here in a second with these in com commands, they all stem from the disposition of joy in the Lord. Now, there's some scholars who disagree with that, but I, I think there's a lot of truth to that. Joy is going to drive the next commands that we're going to see. Notice what he says in verse 5, let everyone see your, and the term is gentleness. Notice, I mentioned this in verse 5, in fact, I quote one scholar, he, he defines gentleness as a humble, patient steadfastness, which is able to submit to injustice, disgrace, and maltreatment without hatred or malice. Remember, the church is being attacked, not I don't think their lives are at stake, but we've, we've seen the false teachers that are attacking the church. We know there's also persecution from the state, so to speak. He said, you need, you need to maneuver in gentleness in the midst of this. Again, rooted in joy. Why? What's he say? Look at verse, look at verse 5 at the very end. Um, or I'm not, yeah, at the end of verse 5, what does he say? The Lord is what? Once again eschatology is driving his ethics, right? The Lord is near. And I, I was thinking about this, why and that the Lord is near, uh, because the problem with not walking in gentleness is that you're focusing on the present, right? I got to have justice. I got to have it now. And, and it also, thus, it fails to trust the Lord. The Lord says, I will vindicate. Walking in gentleness is a recognition. God is sovereign. He will honor my faithfulness. He will deal with the crud that this world wants to unleash. And then third, I wrote down, it finds pleasure, worth, and security only in the temporal. If you forget that the Lord is near, that His coming is imminent, right, then you, no wonder you're going to look to the world for your worth, for your pleasure, right? And that's what the world has been doing and continues to do. You know, that hedonistic type mindset. Live it up now because there's a day you're going to die. And Paul says, no, the Lord is near. He's coming. And so you, you must walk in gentleness. In fact, he says in verse 6, do not be anxious. Right? This joy not only calls for walking in gentleness, but it's saying, don't bask in anxiety. Did you catch this? Look what he says. <clears throat> don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, bathe it in prayer. Right? It, it reminds me of elsewhere in the New Testament. It says, um, we're not to worry, but cast all our cares upon him, for he cares for us. Right? How do we, we humble ourselves by casting our cares, Right? Look at Matthew. This is, this is not something new in the New Testament. Paul's very familiar with Christ's teachings. Turn to Matthew chapter 6. You know, there's a lot in this world <laughs> to worry about. A job, wayward children, health issues insecurities. In fact, 
page four of your notes, just I, I listed, well, it's from uh, 10 things that avoid or that trigger anxiety from a website. I know you can't trust anything on the internet, but they gave 10, overthinking, finances, uncertainty, confrontations, work, losing control, aging, meeting new people, relationships, and illnesses. Those, they argue are the top 10. Paul's addressing all of those in this section. And, and, and it's not new because Christ states this. And, and look at Matthew 6, 25. He says, therefore, this is, this is red letters, all right? Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink about your body. Why? Because the Lord is near. That's what Paul's saying, right? Look at the birds of the sky. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you more valuable than they? Why do you worry about clothing? And on he goes, is this how God clothes? And he mentions the, the flowers. And he says, so then, verse 31, don't worry saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear? For the uncoveted pursue these things and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But above all, pursue his righteousness. And how do you do that? One way is through prayer. And that's what Paul's saying. It's interesting. Go back to chapter four here in Philippians you got a church that's hurting. They're being attacked theologically. They're being attacked because they stand for Christ. Uh, they know Paul's in prison, their great leader. Things seem to be unraveling a little bit. And Paul says here in this text, don't worry. Don't be anxious about anything. Right? But just the opposite, he says, pray for everything. So there's your solution, right? In fact, he says, pray and do it with thanksgiving, which we'll get to in a minute. Questions? Yeah, Rock. How do you live it? It's easy enough to say, but how do you live it every day? How do we live it? Thoughts? I mean, Paul, Paul's giving it. How do we live it? And that's what we turn it over to the Lord. With thanksgiving. In fact, that leads, let me, I want to tie it into your question because why would he mention thanksgiving with prayer? That's what he says in the text. With, with thanksgiving. Why? Takes the focus off yourself. Takes the focus off yourself. What else? The truth is, more goodness happens to us than real bad things. We can forget that more goodness uh, happens than bad things. What else? Effectual change in the attitude. You notice he, he, he says, don't be anxious about these things. Instead, turn it all over to the Lord because this is the one who's caring for you. Well, look what the Lord, reflect on what the Lord has done, is doing, and will do. The Lord is near. And I, I think that's how we do that. It's a, it's a constant struggle. There's no doubt about it. But anxiety, as seen here in the text, is clear. It's sin. And notice he says, unless you miss it about anything, there's no excuse. Right? Covers everything. And so does the prayer. And notice, this is great, because in this process of basking everything in prayer and, and, and walking in gentleness, 
Notice what the result is. The peace of God. You catch on the text? Look what he says. Don't look at me. The text says it, right? And verse 7, the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. It'll blow your mind away, right? You're not going to grasp this. It doesn't make sense. You talk to people who are walking with the Lord and they've lost a loved one and they've got this peace that you, you, you know, they'll even say, I, I can't explain it. But it's, it's, it's the Lord coming alongside me. And that's this. It will guard your hearts. That term was used of soldiers who, who secured a city. Remember our, our folks at Philippi? <clears throat> it's a Roman colony. Many of them are Roman veterans. They're very familiar with guarding. You, you want to guard your heart against the, all that's transpiring? Then turn it over to the Lord. I mentioned there at the bottom of page 7. The Lord of peace, that term is loaded because he's not only the giver of peace, he himself is peace, right? Instead, he himself is that peace. Through the prayer, the list of the concerns pertaining to the life, this is verse or page three, are quickly engulfed and lost in a massive tidal wave of God's peace. I wrote in your notes, this tsunami obliterates the barriers of anxiety, doubt, and despair. One commentator writes, the peace of God stands guard over the two areas that create worthy wor- worry, the heart, wrong filling, and the mind, wrong thinking. <laughs> That's dynamite. Leave it to Wearsby to say that. I mean, he's right, right? The two areas that create worry. And he says, we're to walk in joy. Stand firm through joy. And by so doing, you you will live a life of gentleness and you are to walk in prayer. They are the bulwarks against this wave of worry, anxiety, etc. that just plagues, I think, the soul. Questions on this? Again, it's a process. It's not an overnight Okay, Rock's saying, how do you do this? How do you console yourself in a world that's, that applauds anxiety? <clears throat> I, that's why I think he says none of this will make sense. It surpasses all understanding by simply letting the Lord fight the battle. So we just believe. We believe in prayer. <clears throat> Help my unbelief, right? Uh, Dick? And that's why Paul can say, I can take joy in the sufferings. As he mentioned earlier in Philippi, or Philippians, right? Because his whole outlook has changed on circumstances of life. The Lord is near. I can rest in that. Yeah, Don. Yes. Yeah, it's a choice. And, And when... The anxieties of life start to percolate. 
you have the choice as well. Do I run to the Lord, let him deal with this, and lay it at his feet, or do I, I, I seize that and I'll play God? Right? I mean, ultimately, is that not what's happening? Yeah, Steve. There's, there's certainly there's concerns, etc. Um, but all of that needs to be placed at the Lord's feet. No, no, let me, let me move forward. And, and these are great. I wish we had more time. Notice the third thing that he mentions. The third area we're standing firm, not only in unity, not only as we see in joy, but also in our proper thinking. And notice he then gives this laundry list of six ethical um, qualities that that he says should mark our way of thought and i've listed them there for you that is being true that is thoughts that affect by the way not only um well disposition as well it's it's a kind of an all-inclusive worthy of respect i mean think about are you thinking of things that are vulgar or are they honorable um you know you've heard that now you know if, if your thoughts were placed across a screen, would you be embarrassed? <laughs> it would be shocked. Uh, he says, third is that which is just. I think that's referring to the things of the Lord. That which is pure. Some have seen this as related to sexual things. Uh, no, I think the context is more dealing with integrity uh, is the idea here. Um, uh, lovely, agreeable, and that which is commendable, that which is worthy. He says, this should govern your thinking. And notice, he then gives kind of a summary of these. He says, that which is excellent and that which is praiseworthy, which encompasses all six of those qualities. He says, this is what is excellent. This is which is praiseworthy. It's such a contrast to the person who's worrying, right? Because worry isn't going to run to that which is just, pure, etc. You start to maneuver the, the pieces on the board to fit your own agenda, uh, you know, uh, you start to compromise integrity, et cetera, et cetera, because of worry and, and, and the anxieties of, of life. He says, no, 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 no. You turn to the Lord, and, and this is where our thought should reside. It's interesting, in verse 9, he once again comes back to be an imitator of me. He says, this is what I've tried to model for you, to teach you. There's a, a comment from Hawthorne in his, there under verse 9 in your notes. He says, Fear, worry, anxiety, depression, all the countless concerns that bombard the, the Philippian Christian minds can be kept at bay if they will continuously reckon up, think over, estimate aright, fill their minds with all things good and true, and then... Rise up and do them. Because notice what he says in verse 9. What you've seen in me, do. For him, again, the cognitive spills out into the effective domain. Uh, if it's all up here, we got a real problem, right? We're not studying this book in depth on Thursday mornings so we can just be very um, well-informed and theologically astute. That's not why we're doing this. And, that's one of the reasons, but it should be spilling us over into affecting our actions. 
Well, let me give you three things to hang on your beak today as you walk. Number one, prayer quickly comes, doesn't it, when we're in need, but far less when we're simply rooted in appreciation. One of my favorite holidays, I think it's a bum rap, is Thanksgiving, <laughs> uh, because we go from the, the ghosts and the goblins and the ghouls and all that stuff uh, straight into to Christmas, and Thanksgiving gets passed over. I'd love to move it to April. Uh, Micah, can we push that in the lobby? Uh, I'd like to move it somewhere else in, this, in, the, in the year. April probably wouldn't be good with Easter, January, February. Um, because it's a time just to reflect on what God has done. Uh, and I love that. Gratitude to the Lord should always flow from the lips of the believer. Colossians 4 talks about that. I mean, take an inventory of your prayer life the last week. How much of it was spent, and, and Lord, thank you. Uh, right? Uh, look at the Lord's Prayer, that prayer which the Lord gave His disciples. It models that of gratitude, recognition who God is, and worshiping Him first before ever getting to petition, right? Uh, secondly, worry takes our eyes off the Lord and is always seen in Scripture as sin. I read Matthew 6 to you. Um, it's the easy default. There's no doubt about it. Uh, and uh, there's much in this world to have anxiety over. <laughs> but as a believer, Paul says, no. If you understand joy, if you understand the Lord, etc., do you notice how many times he says in the Lord or in Christ Jesus in these few verses we just read? It's an understanding. This is who we're rooted in. None of the rest of this matters because our Christ Jesus is who we adhere to. Verse 7 highlights that, right? and that peace that comes from Him. And then finally, we can't ride the fence. Scripture does not allow for any middle ground as it pertains to trusting in the Lord. Either we're partaking in right praying, thinking and living, or wallowing in the mire of worry. All right? James 4.4. We'll close with this text. James 4.4 highlights this. It says, don't you know that friendship with the world means hostility towards God? The coexist bumper sticker isn't going to work here. <laughs> Sorry. Right? You either fear Him or you don't. Either you, you're walking in trust and understanding the peace that He gives or you're not. <clears throat> there is a quote at the front of, on page one. It's a long one. But I want to read it because it's worth its weight in gold. <clears throat> I mean, put this on your dashboard this week. Put it on a mirror and reflect on Philippians 4. There is nothing, no circumstance, no trouble, no testing that can ever touch me until, first of all, it has gone past God and past Christ right through to me. Think about that. If it has come that far, it has come with great purpose, which I may not understand at the moment. But as I refuse to become panicky, uh, worry, anxious, as I lift up my eyes to Him and accept it as coming from the throne of God for some great purpose of blessing in my own heart. No sorrow will ever disturb me. No trial will ever disarm me. No circumstance will cause me to fret, for I shall rest in the joy of what the Lord is. Isn't that a great quote? You know, in, in meeting with people who are struggling, and I don't do much like counseling, but, uh, you know, in, in meeting with folks and in praying with them, 
it's always interesting to see those who who all of a sudden have come to the point, you know what? I don't understand this. This really stinks, but I trust God. And you're going, ha, <laughs> we've just reached a new level, right? He was a minister of, what, early 1900s, I think. Uh, we've gone, gone by years. Yes, years gone by. Any other questions or comments? It's is on one level very easy, isn't it? You could teach this to a four or five-year-olds. Don't worry. Be happy. On another level, it is so deep. How much time it, do you have? <laughs> it is. This whole theology of joy... It's very complex, really. And you think about the understanding. And for Paul to say in the midst of all of this with Odie and Stinky over here and the worries of life, he says, rejoice. In case you didn't get it, I said rejoice. Always. Right? Pretty strong statement. Yeah, Paul. Amen. That was 1 Peter 5, 10, and 11. To him be the glory forever. Amen. You know how he closes out that letter? 1 Peter 5, 14. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. There it is. Kyle, we'll close. It is hard. Well, that's what you were saying earlier. State of joy is an, is an attitude, right? I'm happy when I have a, a bowl of ice cream. <laughs> I'm joyful even when the bowl of ice cream is empty. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I don't share my ice cream with anybody. Father, <laughs> we come to you. And Lord, thank you. You are such a great God. Who, who would have thought to plan this out so, so much so that <clears throat> the cruds of the world, <laughs> we get to lay that at your feet as well. And you already know. And that's why Paul can say, hey, we can rejoice. For one, we know what you're doing in and through us. And secondly, we know the end. <laughs> we know the score at the end of the game. It's already been posted, and that is you, your son, is going to come back and is going to reign for all eternity. And all this crud is going to be washed away. Lord, help us to be faithful and standing firm, standing firm in unity, standing firm as we walk in joy, and standing firm in proper thinking. Lord, so that when that day comes... We will hear those words, well done, thou good and faithful servant. It's in Christ that we find this peace, and we thank you. Lord, there's a world 
that does not know what peace is. And yet we have it right here in front of us. Lord, help us to be ambassadors for you as we live countercultural, <laughs> as we exalt your son. Lord, it's in whose name we pray. Amen.